This is Dr. Tiberius Rata and his teaching on Ezra and Nehemiah. This is session number 11, Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13. Okay, we come to the close of the study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and to, uh, we're going to deal with chapters 11, 12, and 13. In chapter 11, we deal with the repopulation of uh, Jerusalem, and that's what chapter 11 does. just focuses on the fortification of Jerusalem's physical, human, and governmental strength. And uh, interesting here, Jerusalem... Uh, is referred to as uh, the holy city. The first two verses of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem in the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. (laughs) Nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. Again, it was very practical. It's because they wanted to live in the towns outside where they could plant crops, plant fruit trees, and and live there. So it seems that the leaders lived in Jerusalem, and then for the rest, they had to cast lots to see who would live in the, uh, in the city. Again, this is a, still a time where casting lots was seen as uh, the divine, uh, divine will. Uh, we see in the New Testament, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, Casting lots is not a way anymore to find uh, the will of God. How big was the city at this time? Uh, Yamauchi suggests that the population of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time had contracted to 6,000 people. Um, Again, uh, it sounds uh, very uh, logical. Um, And then chapter... Uh, 11 continues with this repopulation of uh, Jerusalem. And in, here in chapter 11, we have a list of, uh, of people uh, who repopulate Jerusalem. And uh, again, uh, verses 3 to 9 uh, mention the leaders. Verses 10 to 14 uh, list the priests. Verses 15 to 18 list the Levites. And then verses 19 to 24, you have the different uh, groups, uh, the gatekeepers, for example, in verse 19. Uh, verse 21, uh, the temple uh, servants. Verse 22, the overseer of the Levites, uh, so forth and, uh, uh, and so on. Um, again, this is a, just kind of an idea to see who repopulated uh, Jerusalem. Uh, verses 25 to 36 uh, then uh, deal uh, with those who settled in Jerusalem. And again, if you look at the, the numbers in chapter 7 and 11, uh, you see those who returned from captivity, a little bit over 30,000, and those who settled in Jerusalem, uh, over, some over 3,000. Uh, 3, um, the, the Bible speaks about uh, from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom to delineate Judah's borders. Um, 
and then uh, of course the city of Jerusalem was well, was within the city uh, the city walls um, and then when we move to chapter uh, 12 uh, we have more uh, more of a list of priests and Levites who returned from exile uh, and you have the first nine verses listing the family names of priests and Levites who returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Um, and uh, then we continue in verses 10 and 11 with a list of priests. Uh, now this list is, uh, has a span of about 100 years, from 538 to about 400 uh, B.C. So the, the list of priests here, uh, in verses 11 starts with Joshua, then you have Joachim, Eliashib, um, uh, all the way to Jonathan. Basically, what uh, the writer is doing here is connects uh, connects the high priest from Joshua to uh, Jonathan. Again, about a hundred a hundred years. Now, verses 12 through 21 list the heads of the priestly houses, and then uh, verses 22 to 26. Uh, you have more uh, Levites uh, that are included uh, here. Again, this list is not to, to be comprehensive or it's not meant to be exhaustive. Um, when we get to chapter 27, we get to the, uh, to the dedication of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the city, uh, of the city wall. Um, starting in verse 27. The dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they saw the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages um, of Netopatites and also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. We are not told how much time has elapsed from the time that the uh, wall was rebuilt until the, the wall was uh, dedicated. Uh, but we know as they were looking to, to plan the service, the Levites were not around. Where were they? Well, apparently they built... Uh, homes or they, they settled around the city of Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem. So they had to come get them uh, to celebrate, to plan this big uh, celebration. The part of the celebration was also purification. Uh, we are not told how they did it, but the priests and the Levites, the Bible says here, purified the people, the gates, and the walls. Again, we're not told how uh, they did it. Verse 31, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up to the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. Again, the choir was not an unusual thing. It was not a new thing. David set up choirs uh, in, the, in the service of the temple. But now you had two of them. So imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. One went to the south on the wall to the Dung Gate, and after them went uh, some people. And then... Uh, you had uh, uh, in them going with relative with musical instruments of David and the men of God, and Ezra the scribe went 
before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David and the ascent wall above the house of David um, to the water gate to the east. So imagine two processionals. Uh, one was going to the south and one was going uh, to the north toward the dung gate. So you had a choir, verse 31. You had trumpeteers, verse 35. You had an orchestra formed of different instruments, verse 36. And the procession was led by Ezra. Um, Again, both of them are present here. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Uh, And then starting in verse 38, we have the other choir. It says, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and followed them with with the other half of uh, the people. And the singers sang with uh, Jezreiah and their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And I like the end of verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Uh, again, uh, these guys know how to party. They know how to, uh, to celebrate. Uh, and again, remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And now the joy of the Lord was evident as they were celebrating the dedication of the temple because they realized and they knew that God helped them to uh, rebuild. Starting in verse, four, by the way, here's a, a picture of uh, Nehemiah's wall. Archaeologists recently have discovered uh, this is the reconstructed part, but this is part of the original. Uh, again, uh, if you Remember, if you compare Solomon's temple with these stones, you might say, well, this is not such a big deal. Uh, but we do have evidence uh, of, of, these wall, of this wall being there. Um, it was about, generally speaking, about eight feet wide. And uh, the, the height differed depending... Uh, where it was, but it, will, it went all the way up to 40 feet. So uh, you had, uh, this wall was, uh, uh, again, uh, the archaeologists assure us this is from the time of, uh, of Nehemiah. And then you have, uh, starting in verse 44, uh, the offerings for the temple service. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. Remember, the Levites did not get a piece of land. Uh, they were supposed to live off of the offerings that were brought uh, to the temple. Verse 45, And they performed the service of their God and service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David, now we're getting a history lesson. Where does this uh, tradition of singing go back? For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving uh, to God. And all of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that uh, which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the signs of Aaron. What we see here was a return to obedience to the law of God. 
And this was evident in the way they dealt with the offerings uh, to the temple. Um, so the celebration included music and the celebration included uh, purification. Um, indeed, I remember this was nothing new. Uh, David and Solomon had uh, musicians and choirs in the temple. First Chronicles 23 to 26 uh, details the organization of the Levites, the priests, the gatekeepers, the musicians. But now the organization of the temple workers followed uh, that model which David left for us uh, and Solomon in Second Chronicles uh, 8. So everything that Nehemiah did was patterned um, after the, the past. And then in chapter 13, you have a reformation. And this reformation is done in many different uh, ways. We will see that there's a reform through exclusion, expulsion, organization, Sabbath observation, and separation um, from sin. First of all, uh, not very popular, but uh, very important reform through exclusion. The first three verses of chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated Israel from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Again, we see the, uh, this motif of exclusion. You might say, wait a second, God is exclusionary? The answer is yes. If you think about it, all religions are exclusionary. Uh, in this case, uh, they understand from the word of God uh, about exclusion from people who are not Yahweh uh, worshipers. And again, this is nothing new. This, go back, this goes back to the time of Moses. Intermarriage with non-Israelites had been against God's law since the time of Moses, as outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Not only do you have reform through exclusion, you have reform through expulsion. Listen to what happened in the temple. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine and oil, which was given to by the commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, the first um, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked, the, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, remember the blueprint of the tabernacle. 
uh, obviously you had uh, the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, nobody could, could live there. Again, only the priests could go there. So where would they prepare? What did Eliashib actually have a room for, uh, for Tobiah? It seems, uh, according to this, that probably in one of the storerooms that went around the, the temple. Uh, so according to this text, uh, there were store, uh, storehouses, storerooms, to put grain, wine, oil, and other things like that. And apparently, because this guy, these guys are related, Eliashib made a room for Tobiah in the very temple of God. Nehemiah says, this is wrong. This is not a place uh, to house the homeless. <laughs> we don't know if he was homeless, but whatever happens here, you are doing something that is not clean. So Nehemiah has to do what every leader sometimes has to do, is to, to do a reform through expulsion. Um, just like there's a reform through exclusion, there's reform through expo- uh, expulsion. And Nehemiah wanted that uh, cleansed. There's also reform through organization, starting in verse 10. I also found that portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So then the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tide of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses. And then the names are, are given. For they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So Nehemiah has to get organized and to set some things in place. And then in verse 14, he prays to God again. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his uh, service. Why is the house of God forsaken? That was Nehemiah's question points to the neglect of the proper function of the temple. We are reminded of the question of God through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai 1.4 While in Haggai the question focused on the physical aspect of the temple, in Nehemiah the cultic aspect was brought to the forefront they had to return to the law of God, the law, the Torah. So in God's economy, restoration is spelled R-E-S-T-O-R-A-H, T-I-O-N. Torah is in the middle of restoration. Restoration. The Torah has to be central in this restoration. And that's what they're doing. And again, he prays, remember me. He prayed that uh, before. Um, again, this is a figure of speech. God doesn't forgive. God doesn't forget. 
Nehemiah. Doesn't, that God doesn't forget uh, anyone. Um, but it is a figure of speech that compares God's memory with a slate on which one's good deeds are uh, recorded. Uh, Nehemiah prays that God will not wipe clean the slate on which Nehemiah's good work for the temple and the cult were uh, recorded. And then there is reform through Sabbath observation. Uh, it seems that while they were in exile, the people of God did not really keep uh, the Sabbath. Um, and we know that for, we, we see this from their practices, that they still continue uh, in that, starting in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Deny your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then again, uh, Nehemiah prays, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. See, in the people's zeal to rebuild to commerce, through commerce, they ignored God's law. They said you should keep the Sabbath. Actually, when we read the Chronicles, we know that one of the reasons God took them into exile is because they did not keep. God says, you did not keep my Sabbaths. And uh, in this case, we see there is traffic through the, through the fish gates where people were bringing in fish and other goods. But the Sabbath observation was there uh, for a very important reason. Keep the Sabbath day to make it holy, God says on the fourth commandment. The Sabbath day was for two purposes, for rest and for worship. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm using the Sabbath day to sleep in. Well, you have missed the point. Well, you have missed half the point. It is for rest, but it's also for worship. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, to keep it holy. And in this case, they were not doing that. And Nehemiah needs to make a reform and needs to bring back to people that you need to observe the Sabbath because that is God's, uh, God's law. Nehemiah takes command and things changed. And then there's the last 
the last reform. Reform through the separation from sin. Again, the, the issue of intermarriage comes into play. Starting in verse 23. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, I want to make a reference here. This is not a text where you say, wow, Nehemiah was a great leader. I'm going to do the same. No, no, no. This text is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. If you think about it, remember how Ezra uh, dealt with this? Ezra wept and he cried and he got on his knees and he wept with the people. Uh, It looks like Nehemiah's style of leadership is different and it is not for us to to follow. Uh, Nehemiah confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for uh, yourselves. Nehemiah's harsh description, though, should teach us that we should take God seriously. That should be the lesson for us. But remember, uh, his approach is different than Ezra's approach. And uh, we are not to follow this uh, to the letter of the law. Uh, Verses 26 to 27, he refers to a lesson in history. uh, And he uses Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? To bolster his point, Nehemiah uses an illustration from history, from a a history that they knew, and they knew about Solomon. And indeed, Solomon was loved by God. The Bible even said he was named Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. If you read 1 Kings, he was a great, the greatest, the wisest man. But the Bible also said that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. 1 Kings 11.4 And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. The act of intermarrying pagan women was described as evil and treacherous. And this sin... Is not against one's culture, against one's ancestors. This sin was against God himself. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Even though Nehemiah seems to have worked closely with Eliashib, the high priest, uh, Eliashib apparently associated himself with Tobiah, according to Nehemiah 13.4. Uh, but Eliashib's grandson had married a pagan woman. What made the situation worse was this one was the daughter of Sambalat the Horonite. Remember, one of Nehemiah's greatest 
uh, enemies. And Yemiah expelled this law-breaking grandson of Eliashib from the Jewish community. How does uh, the book end? The book ends again with a remember me prayer. Uh, in uh, Nehemiah you have four times where Nehemiah says, remember me. Remember me. And the last one is here at the end of chapter 13. It says Before he says, remember me, he says, remember them. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each his work. And I provided for the wood offering and at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. You see here a contrast between Nehemiah and these people who desecrate the priesthood. Nehemiah wants to stay pure to the law of God. And that's why uh, Nehemiah, if you look at Nehemiah, begins with prayer. Nehemiah ends with prayer. Remember me. He says, remember them. Then he says, remember me. Uh, Fensham concludes his commentary when he writes, A new era of Jewish worship has started. Worship according to prescribed legal principles. It was only with the coming of Christ and the interpretation of his coming by Paul that another era was commenced in which the legal burden was removed from the shoulders of mankind and the center of religion placed in his vicarious suffering on the cross. It is the new era of faith and love in Jesus Christ. So as a matter of application, it is important um, to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and understand which parts are descriptive and which, are, which parts are uh, prescriptive. I had a pastor one time um, who told me, well, I took uh, Nehemiah 8 and I used that and we used that for our uh, service as a, as a blueprint. Uh, that's great, but that, I'm not sure that was the intent of that passage. Um, uh, remember, Nehemiah was harsh in the way he treated the people. Uh, today's pastor cannot beat the congregates, pull out their hair because they have sinned, no matter what sin uh, that is. Uh, but we should look at the principles that we have here. The principles are clear. God desires his people to be set apart and to live holy lives. Uh, God's leaders need to be make sure that God's word has preeminence and it is God's word that is the practice of the believer for faith and for practice. But ultimately, Ezra and Nehemiah point forward to the coming of the true leader, the person, the person of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and set an example uh, for us. Uh, that we should follow him. That was the call of Jesus. Follow me. And in the Gospels it is clear that a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who follows Jesus on the 
way. And we are called to follow him. And we are called to be faithful to his word like Ezra and Nehemiah were. This is Dr. Tiberius Rata and his teaching on Ezra and Nehemiah. This is session number 11, Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13.